the scripture for us. Thank you for the intro. <clears throat> John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. <clears throat> this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Henry. What we have been doing for this fall is we're we're talking about the kingdom of God, which is this massive, hard to kind of wrap your mind around concept, but we're trying to break it down and try to make sense of it because we're, we're, uh, it's important. It's a big deal. It's a massive theme in the Bible. And we've been seeing that the kingdom of God really has to do with God's rule, his reign, it's his, uh, it's his redemptive project to heal and to restore uh, what sin has damaged and what, what sin has broken in the world. And our, our in-house definition of how, to, of how to even define it is that the kingdom of God is the upside down, already not yet, revolution of God making all things new. Hopefully that makes I don't know if that makes any sense, but that makes sense to me. Um, but what, what you see if you go through the Bible is that in Jesus' ministry, often he talks about, uh, when he talks about the kingdom, he, he talks about that it must be something that you enter. The kingdom is something that must be entered into. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom. In Mark chapter 10, he says, unless you receive the kingdom like a little child, you cannot enter it. In uh, Luke chapter 18, he says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom, which raises this big question, okay, well, then how do you enter? How do you enter into it? That's the question I want to try to tackle uh, this morning. And here's how I want to set this up. Um, I am currently reading the first book of The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, 
to my daughter, Zoe Kate, for bedtime reading. So I'm going to really try to resist in the next months, years, however long it takes for us to read this, to just talk about Lord of the Rings constantly. But I'm going to indulge myself uh, today, allow myself to do this. So if you're familiar with the story, if you've read the, if you've read the story, if you've seen the movies, um, you know there's a, there's a group of, of, of travelers. They're, they're on this quest to go deal with the ring problem that has presented itself. And at one point on their journey, they realize they cannot get over this mountain and they've got to get on the other side. And so the only way is to go underneath it, is to go through uh, the mountain. Uh, there's, the, there's, there's all these old uh, mine shafts that are in the, in the mountain that the dwarves had created. It's kind of the dwarf kingdom. And so they're like, we've got to just get through this door. So they come to this door on the side of this mountain to get in. And, and over the top of this door... It's an elvish language that says, speak, friend, and enter. And so Gandalf, their leader, says, okay, we've got to speak something. We've got to say a secret password. And so he says all these kind of elvish words, and it doesn't budge. Doors don't, doesn't open. He tries some more words. Maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Door doesn't open. And he gets frustrated and starts blasting all of these spells and incantations, trying to bust the door down. It's too strong. The magic is too strong. You can't force your way in. He's frustrated. He just says, open, open, open. Nothing. They're just stuck. They know they need a secret password. They don't know how to get in. They're just sitting there. And finally, it occurs to Gandalf what it is. And he says, the word friend. Because remember it said, speak, friend, and enter. And the doors open, and they go in, and they fight a balrog. Anyway, it's, this may be the, the dorkiest introduction I've ever given in, in a sermon. But entering into the mines, entering into that mountain, the mines of Moria, was completely counterintuitive. It was so obvious, and yet it... it it wasn't obvious. It, it, it cut against their natural instincts. And I, and I bring that up because entering into the kingdom is the same way. There is a way to try to, the, to enter the kingdom that feels so natural to us. It is ingrained into our psyche. It's ingrained into our being that this is how you enter. And it, it's a dead end. You will not enter in the way that seems obvious to you. And yet, there's a way to enter that is extremely obvious. It's very simple, and yet it cuts against all of our natural instincts. It's totally counterintuitive, and yet it is the way to, it's the way to enter. So what I want to do this morning is try to unpack what are those two different approaches. What is the dead end, the way that doesn't work, that feels so natural to us, and what is the way in? which feels totally counterintuitive to us. So those are the two big ideas we're going to explore. What's the dead end? What's the way in? So first, let's talk about the dead end. Um, and to do that, let's, let's talk about this, this passage for a second. In verse 1, we get introduced to this guy named Nicodemus, and we learn two really important details about him in the first verse. We find out that he is a, quote, man of the Pharisees, which means he was a... Um, devoted, Bible-believing, biblical scholar. He's a, he's a religious Navy SEAL, in other words. And uh, secondly, we find out he's a ruler of the Jews, which means he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, which was called the Sanhedrin. This is like their version of the Supreme Court. So you put those two things together and you realize, okay, this dude's a big deal. 
In fact, when you go down, if you jump down to verse 10, if you look in verse 10, it says that Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel, not a teacher in Israel, but the, which means this is the highest ranking biblical scholar of his day. This dude is, Nicodemus is a big deal, mega successful. Everybody would have known who he was. Some of the scholarship um, even, even suggests that there's a possibility that Nicodemus may have been the wealthiest and most politically influential person in the country at this point. Big deal. In fact, this is the guy that everybody knows, everybody loves, and yet deep down we all kind of hate because we want to be him. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's, he's rich, he's attractive, he's athletic, he, he, he's amazing, he, he, he works out, he drinks smoothies, he has a gorgeous head of hair. We want to be him. And, um, and yet, for all of his success, for all of his notoriety, all of his accomplishments, all of his moral virtue, he is empty on the inside. Something is lacking internally, existentially. And you know this because you see in verse 2, he comes to Jesus by night. He comes to Jesus because he's heard about this guy, Jesus, and he thinks, okay, maybe this guy, Jesus, can provide something for me that I'm lacking. And so he comes up to Jesus and he starts by affirming him, rabbi, he's flattering him. He's like, hey, you know, by the way, I think that you've come from God because nobody else could do this stuff that you're doing. He's affirming Jesus and, and Jesus just cuts through all the flattery And look what he says in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus, of course, I think is uh, thrown off by this. (laughs) He says, "Um, I don't know what you mean. Born again? How, How can a human being be born a second time? And then Jesus doubles down in verse 5, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which is just another way of saying being born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So there it is. Jesus says the way that you enter the kingdom is that you have to be born again. Now, I know that phrase has some funky connotations, especially in Southern church culture. But here's what he basically means. He just means, Nicodemus, you have to be remade. You have to experience a deep transformation, which if you think about it, this is crazy. Jesus is looking at somebody who has everything. He's looking at somebody with all of his money, all of his accomplishments, all of his virtue, all of his morality, all of his, his impressive resume, and he's looking at Nicodemus and saying, none of it counts. You have to start completely over. You, what you need is not just uh, another little spiritual life hack that you're coming to me for. You need to be completely redone. You have to start over. In other words, what Jesus is doing here, I think, is he is confronting the way that human beings universally think about spirituality, how, how we think about religion. Because when it comes to re- religious stuff, deep down, what I think human beings believe across the board, ancient, modern, universally, is that we believe that religion is really just about goodness. What matters the most, what is most important, is that you be a good person. It doesn't really matter what you believe about ultimate reality. 
What really matters is, are you a good person? Are you, are you good? Are you following the rules? Are you virtuous? Uh, for example, I heard uh, another pastor, Tim Keller, uh, you, you tell this story, use, use this example. He said, sometimes you'll hear Christians explain the gospel, either like in a, in a pulpit or over coffee or, you know, whenever a Christian is, is talking about the gospel and they say, well, you know, I think that um, somebody is saved completely by grace alone through faith in Jesus. And if they're telling this to somebody who's not a Christian, who doesn't believe this, um, a very common response to that is to say, okay, wait, wait, wait a second. Are you telling me that a virtuous, good Buddhist would not be saved just because they don't trust Jesus, just they don't believe in Jesus? And Tim Keller's making this point. He's saying, okay, but notice what they said. The objection isn't about drawing attention to a bad Buddhist, but a good one. And his point is, is that with this little dialogue, is that deep down what that exposes is that really underneath all of our thinking and believing about spirituality and religious stuff, it, we don't really care if you believe in Buddha or Jesus or Muhammad or whatever. The real question is, are you a good person? That's what really matters. That's the religious impulse. In fact, uh, to, to, to support this, one more example. There's another story in the Gospels where another rich, young ruler, a different one, comes up to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, I have kept all of the commandments since I was a little kid. I, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I don't commit adultery. But, like, what do I lack? What, what am I missing? And that's, that's the religious impulse the religious impulse. Here is somebody who's coming to Jesus. In fact, I would say most people initially come to Jesus or they come to church or they come to God and they're asking that question, what do I lack? What am I missing? My life, for the most part, is good. It's put together. I, 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 I'm, I'm a good person. I try to follow the rules. I try to stay within the lines, but I feel like I'm missing something. So I'm going to come to church. I'm going to come to Jesus. I'm going to come to God. Tell me what I'm missing. Give me like the boost that I need to just like get over the hump. Give me like the, whatever secret little thing I need to do to start implementing. And Jesus obliterates that entire way of thinking with this born again language. Because he's saying, that's our impulse. We think, okay, the way to enter into the kingdom is I, I need to turn up uh, some morality. I've got to turn up some goodness. Tell me, tell me some spiritual practice I need to do that I'm not doing. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. What you most desperately need is not just like an additional little life hack on top. The whole system has to be blown up and deconstructed. The whole thing has to be redone. You have to be born again. Think about it like this. There's, um, I mean, we're approaching Halloween, and so let's think about zombies for a second. You, know, you can picture a zombie in your, in your head. You can see the vacant stare, the dirty clothes, ragged clothing. You know, they walk with a limp, arms outstretched. You know what I'm saying? If you were to come upon a zombie and you were to say, how do we get that zombie to become like a normal human being again? Like, what would we need to do? And let's say your plan was, okay, let's take that zombie and let's run some errands. Let's stop by the spa 
And we need to give this thing a long soak, a long bath, give it a shower, use some high-powered, strong, exfoliating soaps, and clean this thing up. Then let's go over to the salon, wash its nasty, matted hair, give it a cute trim, maybe uh, swing by anthro, pick up a new outfit, um, maybe throw in a mani, throw in a petty. And let's say, let's say, you're doing all, let's say you do this. Does that turn the zombie back into a normal human? And the answer is no. It might smell better, but it will still walk with a limp, and it will still try to eat you. And the point is, Jesus is looking at Nicodemus, and he's saying, essentially, you are basically a very well-groomed zombie. You're coming to me because you think, I have advice on what shower you should take, what soap you should use. What you most desperately need is a pervasive, top-to-bottom overhaul of your very nature. That's what you need. And he's looking at you and me, by the way, and he's saying the same thing. That if you want to enter the kingdom, what you don't need is to just change this bad habit or to just... Uh, implement some new spiritual practices, or for Jesus to just give you a little life hack to get you over the hedge of what you're, what you're missing. He's saying, no, what you need is a top-to-bottom, complete inner transformation of who you are as a person. Unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom. That's the dead end. That's what we think. We think, well, if I just Crank up the morality, crank up the spirituality, just tell me what to do and I'll get in. It's a dead end, which raises the million-dollar question. Well, then how do you get in? What is the way in? How do you get this born-again thing? Well, let me show you. This is the second thing we're going to talk about, the way in. And I think that the response that Jesus is looking for in this passage is twofold. He's looking for two responses. He's pressing Nicodemus. He's pressing us into two responses. And here's the first. The first response is that we come to terms with our helplessness. Come to terms with your helplessness. Here's what I mean. Jesus uses two metaphors in this passage. The first is this birth thing, born again. Think about your own birth for a second. How much involvement did you have in your birth? The answer is zero. It just happened to you. You just showed up. You were passive in the whole event. You didn't get to decide who your parents were. You didn't get to decide where on the planet you would show up in. You didn't get to decide what century you were going to be born into. You just appeared. Birth was something that happened to you. You, you were powerless over it. And here's the second metaphor, the second image that Jesus uses in verse 7 is this idea of wind. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you think about wind, think about those storms that we experienced in Memphis, uh, I guess this past summer, all the, you know, when all the trees went down and power went out, it was awful. You can't control wind. You can't generate wind. You can't manage wind. It's just this force that happens 
on the earth. And Jesus is saying, it's the same way with the Spirit of God. You can't control the Spirit of God. You can't manage Him. You can't jump through hoops and manipulate Him and get Him to do stuff for you. You are completely at His mercy. So you put these two metaphors together, birth, wind, Jesus is pressing Nicodemus and he is pressing us to come to this conclusion. I am powerless. I, I, I cannot rescue myself. I cannot transform myself. I cannot fix myself. Here's why. Nicodemus has been asking this question his entire life. What do I do? Tell me what to do. I think it was an Enneagram 3. Just tell me what to do. Give me the steps. Give me the plan, and I will do it. Tell me the podcast I need to be listening to. Tell me the books that I need to read. Tell me the people that I need to follow. Give me the steps. Give me the insight. I will do it. Just tell, what are the steps? Tell me what to do. What do I do? And Jesus is saying, wrong question. That's the wrong question. The question isn't, what do I do? You can't do anything. You don't have the power to transform yourself any more than you have the power to birth yourself. You don't have the power to make yourself new any more than you have the power to control Hurricane Katrina. Now, if you're anything like me, at this point you hear this and you think, that is so frustrating. Well, then what do I do then? How do I even respond? If I, don't, if I can't do anything, why are we having this conversation? How do I even, what do I even say? And in fact, that's where Nicodemus gets led. Look at what he says in verse 9. He just says, how can these things be? In other words, he's no longer asking, what do I do? And he's just saying, what? Help? Why? I don't understand. He's basically left speechless. And that's the place where Jesus wants him to be brought to this point where he is coming to terms with the fact of I am helpless, I am powerless, and I, I, there's nothing that I can do. And you think, okay, why in the world would Jesus want someone to get to that point? Here's why. Because Jesus knows you and I will never look for help outside of ourselves until we come to the end of ourselves. Until you are convinced, I am not the solution, you will never ask for help. When our daughter was four years old, much younger, we, you know, we let her play Angry Birds on our phone or our you know, iPad or whatever, and it was, I cannot describe to you how maddening it was to watch my four-year-old play Angry Birds. Because you, you remember the game, you're familiar with the game, you, pull, you put a bird in a slingshot and you pull the slingshot down and it shoots the bird up and it smashes into buildings with the green pigs. But my daughter, as a four-year-old, didn't really understand the physics of the game. So she, instead of putting the bird down to go up, she was pulling the bird up to go up. And the bird doesn't go up if you start it in the up position. It goes down. And so she's just putting the thing up, just smashing into the ground over and over and over. And I'm watching this thinking, sweetie, 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 let me show you how to do it. Let, let, me, let me help you. Let me show you how to do it, and you'll have a lot more fun. And you know what she did? She would say, no, no. I do it myself. Up, down, up, smash, over, over, over. And you're watching this and you're thinking, I cannot take this. It's maddening. She's dying over and over. She's frustrated. I'm frustrated. But here's the point. If you go through life with that as your default, I got this. I can do it. I just need someone to tell me what to do. 
Tell me what I lack. Tell me what I'm missing. But I got this. As long as that is your heart's disposition, you'll just die over and over and over and over and over and over, and it is extremely frustrating. I have a friend that recently said, we relate to life. It is our default instinct to relate to life in the same way that we relate to our old high school yearbooks. You know when you pull an old yearbook off the, off the bookshelf and you start flipping through it? You, you know what you're doing. You're looking for you. And Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus, and he's trying to get me, and he's trying to get you to stop looking for you. Stop looking within as the solution. Stop looking at yourself to be the thing that fixes your life problems and start looking outside of yourself to Jesus. That's the second response that he's looking for. The first one is come to terms with your helplessness. The second response is to look to Jesus. And you see this in verse 14. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus is referring to this very obscure, deep cut in the Old Testament from the book of Numbers. Nicodemus would have known it well as a Bible scholar, but the story that, that Jesus is referring to is about the time when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And in the middle of their wandering, they get to this one point where all of these poisonous snakes start infiltrating their camp. And the snakes are biting people, and the venom is getting into people, and people are dying. It's like this massive crisis, and they're crying out, they're screaming out, they're freaking out. And so God comes to Moses, their leader, and he says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to make a serpent out of bronze. Make, like, sculpt, fashion a bronze serpent and wrap it around a pole and lift that pole in the air. And if somebody gets bitten and the venom starts to come into their body, if they will just look at that serpent on a pole, they'll be healed. They'll be, they'll be, their lives will be spared. All they have to do is look. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, do you know what that story is really about? That story is really about me. Just like that snake on a pole, I am going to be put on a cross and I'm going to be lifted up. And anybody who looks upon me, anybody who looks to me in faith, they will be healed. They will be saved. They will be transformed. You know, snakes, serpents, very symbolic in the Bible. You know, they represent the curse of sin, the poison of sin. How did sin enter into the world in the first place? It came through a serpent. And Jesus is saying, I am going to become that snake for you. I will become a curse for you. I will take the ultimate venom, the ultimate uh, deconstruction so that all you have to do, you just look upon me and you will be healed. I will be undone so that you can be made new. All you have to do, all that's required is you simply look to me. When you look to Jesus on the cross in faith, what you're really saying is you are saying, I am taking my eyes off of me and I am, I am putting them on him. I am entrusting my very life to him. He is my help. He is my righteousness. He is my savior, not me. I am not the hero of my story. 
He is. And if you look to Jesus, you know what that means? It means that you have been born again and that you have entered into the kingdom. And here's, this, here's the amazing wonder of it all is that when you look to Jesus in faith, you come to discover that he has been looking at you the entire time with the eyes of compassion, with the eyes of love, with the eyes of grace, with the eyes of longing, longing for you to simply look to him to be your help. You might know the name Charles Spurgeon, famous Baptist preacher from the 1800s in London. He tells the story many times over the course of his ministry about how he became a Christian, about how he was converted. And the story goes like this. He was 15 years old. He was depressed. He was miserable. And he wakes up one Sunday morning in January and wants to go to church by himself. And so he goes to church by himself. He's walking through the streets of London. There, it, the problem was there had been this massive snowstorm that had just blown through. And so streets were shut down and the whole city was kind of under snow and things were kind of you know, just you know, like that. And he goes out. This was uh, January 6th, believe it or not. Date, interesting date now. It was a different year, though, 1850, January 6th, 1850. And he's going through the streets of London. And he's trying to get to the church that he normally went to. But the church, uh, he could, the streets were closed. He couldn't get to the church he normally went to, so he just went down a side street and just popped into the closest church he could find, which happened to be this little primitive Methodist church, maybe 12, 15 people in the congregation that morning. Snow was so bad, even the pastor himself didn't show up that day. The pastor couldn't get in. The, the roads were blocked or whatever. So there's, you know, picture 12, 15 people. They're going through the service. And they get to the part of the service where the pastor is supposed to get up and preach. But there's no pastor. So some member of the congregation just decides, okay, I'll just get up and just wing something for a few minutes. Somebody's got to say something. And so somebody just gets up and uh, takes the passage that the preacher was supposed to be preaching on that morning, which was uh, Isaiah 45, verse 22, which says this in the King James. It says, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And Spurgeon says, this guy gets up there, and he's an uneducated, blue-collared guy who can't even pronounce, like, the words right. But he remembers this guy's little sermon, and here's what he says the guy said. He says the guy gets up and says, quote, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed, it says, look. Now, that does not take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Look to Jesus Christ. And Spurgeon says, this was his experience as he hears this sermon. He says, quote, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. 
I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the bronze serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed, and so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. It is that simple. Look to Jesus and enter into the kingdom of God. Consider that an invitation for you this morning. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father in heaven, we do pray that you would give us eyes to look to Jesus. Give us the humility, give us the desperation, the despair that we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and to look beyond ourselves to our true help, to our true rescuer, to a Savior who is infinitely more sufficient than we are, infinitely more gracious, infinitely more powerful, infinitely more loving and capable than we are. But Father, we need your Spirit to do it. If we're honest, we can't even look on our own. We need you to help us and to enable us to do so. So please do so that we might behold the beauty and the believability of our King, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.